Yes, you may be seated. That'd be great. I didn't mention this before. My name is Blair. Uh, we started a series last week out of the book of Genesis. Uh, we're talking about the story of Joseph. And I'm trying to help you understand that these are not kids' stories. These, these have foundational ideas, think, big ideas that you should wrestle with and think about. But sometimes what you have to do is you have to kind of dig in. We're, we're going to look today at a question that people have been asking for thousands of years. I still hear it today from the mouths of people. It's, it's in the story of Joseph. So far, we, we asked the question of, who's my father? We looked at that last week. Who protects you? Who provides for you? Who do you look at as the one who's going to give you an inheritance? And Joseph had answered the question, God is. And he needed to answer that before he ended up in Pharaoh's household because he was going to be tempted by a position of power and wealth that he had never seen before. I actually found this while I was um, getting ready for future weeks where Joseph comments on this very thing. This is chapter 45. He's already, already kind of revealed himself to his brothers. They're having a conversation about this, and he says this to them. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Not only had he answered the question, God is my father, he looked at himself as the father to Pharaoh. I'm the one providing for him. I'm the one who's protecting him. I'm the one. So he had this all flipped backwards. Pharaoh, you're not the one who's in control here. God is, and I'm serving that person. And because of that, it changed. It changed his story, his perspective. Well, we're going to take and we're going to pull on another thread like that that runs through the whole story. Um, but to get it, we're going to look at some verses that at best seem incidental. Uh, our culture would read right past these verses because we're not from an ancient culture. We didn't understand how they wrote, why they would write that way, why they would say something like that. And the, the problem is God's about to address something about his character and about what he does when we fail. And we're going to get to see that. I said last week that I'm, I think I would be able to provide you evidence that God was going to find a way to get this family back on track. That's what, um, that's what this morning is about. So um, we're, we're going to go. Now here's the thing. What's always hard about this kind of series is it feels like a fire hose. It feels like I'm just uh, kind of running through a lot of things quickly and building a big case. And I am. Because every one of the points along the way will suddenly, when you put them together, it makes sense with a big idea. So if you get distracted by all the little points and the stops along the way, um, that will be a problem for you. Just stay with me, make the pile, and then focus on where we're taking this at the end, and it'll be okay. It's the best way I can help you overcome that. So I want to take you back to chapter 37 in Genesis, where the story of Joseph has begun. We've already dealt um, with this family that's it's a mess. The family is a complete and utter mess. It, unless you don't call hating your brother a mess. I do. They hate their brother. It's been revealed. All of that's kind of out in the open. Um, the issue of who's your father has been raised. And then we move. The story moves along through the assignment of an errand. Joseph is given an errand. 
and he's sent to a place where there are three references to a seemingly useless place. Like there's, there's no point in it being in the text. And that's the risk. We see that and we read right past it and we miss that something's going on there. Here's what could be going on. Sometimes in the scriptures, the place something happens is as important as what's actually happening. In fact, if you miss the place that it's happening, you might not fully understand what's happening. By the way, this is, this is um, a feature in all of Jewish literature from this ancient time. You will find it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When a place is referred to, you almost have to pay attention to what's happened here before. Or at least you should investigate it. So let me show you the references and explain why they seem useless. Okay, this is verse 12, verse 13, verse 14. Now as brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem. Um, as your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem, that's verse 13. In verse 14, when Joseph arrived at Shechem, we get it. Shechem. And yet what we discover is the brothers aren't at Shechem. They're somewhere else. So why are you wasting so much real estate bringing up this area when they're, they're not even there? This is just a small blip on the screen of Joseph kind of walking there, finding out his brothers aren't there, and then going to where they actually are. Wouldn't it have been better just to say, I went out to meet my brothers? Now, it's risky to go out and meet his brothers. They hate him. Either his father doesn't know this or doesn't care. Maybe his father thinks, uh, because I'm the father, what I say goes. I call the shots, so nothing's going to happen. But he sends him out. And initially, he sends him to Shechem. Well, how do we know if Shechem is important or not? There's only one way to find out, and that's to look. We have to go and look in the text, so that's what I'm going to do with you this morning. And here's, here's what I would tell you. If you go looking for a place that gets referenced in the scriptures like this, one of the most important questions you can ask is where is the first time this was mentioned in the scriptures? Because it'll kick off some stuff, but you have to start there. So when I asked that question, it went back to Genesis chapter 12. This is the first time you'll hear the word Shechem in the scriptures, verse 6 of 12. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moat at Shechem. Here's, th this is so early in the story, his name isn't even Abraham yet. God had called him away from his family, asked him to go and trust him to start something new. And God makes him a promise. This is in verse 2 of the same chapter. He says, I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. And at the end of verse 3, he says, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So he has a plan. I I'm going to take you, Abram. If you will trust me, we're going to do something great together. I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless the rest of the world. Now in verse 7, something interesting happens. It says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. 
So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abram takes the risk. He leaves his land, walks into the land of Cana, wanders around, finds this tree apparently at some sort of landmark. It's near Shechem, so everybody kind of knows where this is, and God meets him, confirms to him that this promise that he made is going to come true. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a blessing to the world. And, and because of that, Abram builds an altar builds an altar, has a sacrifice. This is one of those holy moments. It's a marking moment in this family that would have been passed down through history. Hey, this happened to me. God met me, and it was significant. Is that enough? Is that enough to help us understand why Joseph would stop at Shechem? No, it's not. So we got to add more. We got to look for more. Well, the next time Shechem comes up, is in Genesis chapter 33. The story has progressed just a little bit. God's changed Abram's name to Abraham. He had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob steals, like deceives his father and steals his oldest brother's inheritance. Uh, By the way, he's currently doing that to his oldest son. He's currently going to give that away to somebody else that he shouldn't have been giving it to. So he he's, has a history of this kind of stuff where he's kind of underhanded. And because he had ripped off Esau, he knew he was in trouble, so he left the land. He went back to where Abram came from, and he got a wife, and he's been there quite a while, almost 14 years, maybe probably a little over that. He decides in chapter 33 to return to Canaan. And when he does, he knows he's going to have to face his brother whom he ripped off. And by the way, in this culture, it's fair to not consider that your brother would just be angry, but that your brother would want you dead. And if you go and you read the early parts of that that chapter, 33, it's clear Jacob thinks this is possible. He sees his brother coming with 400 men. And he goes and he bows low. He bows low to him. And this is what's recorded. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. Like he kisses him, they hug, they cry together. There is this healing moment where he is received back into the family. The rift is healed. Like things are, things are right again. He's welcome to stay in the land. And this is what the scriptures record. He kind of goes about And this is what happens in verse 19, because his brother doesn't give him his inheritance back, (laughs) right? This is what he has to do instead. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. Shechem, in this case, is now a guy's name. And you would think, well, what does that have to do with a Shechem that Jacob was at, or that um, Abram was at. Well, we're given a hint that it's kind of the same place. Look at verse 20. There he set up an altar. Very reminiscent of what his grandfather had done. They both build an altar, and what we're about to find out 
is that, is that um, everybody believes where this is at is Shechem. Either the guy named Shechem got his name from the land or the land got his name from somebody in their family. But somewhere along the line, because in, in this whole section of Scripture, 33 and 34, you'll not find one reference to the city that this is about or to the land that this is about. But you hear about this guy named Shechem over and over and over again. And what you discover is that he's kind of an important part of this environment. He's kind of from an important family. And because of that, his name probably probably was gotten from the person who founded the town called Shechem. It was passed down. It was passed down over the years, and he's simply carrying that name. And so the reference of his name, by the way, every scholar that I've looked at would tell you that this city that they're talking about right now is Shechem, the same place that Abram ended up the first time. This is the same place where now Jacob builds an altar. So these two things are related. Now, it gets worse. Because then we fall into chapter 34 and you have to ask yourself, why in the world would anybody ever want chapter 34 recorded in your family history? It's terrible stuff. It's brutal. Um, it, it does help explain a little bit more about Shechem, but here's, here's what happens. Shechem, this guy, is walking around the land and sees one of Jacob's daughters he takes her and violates her sexually and then keeps her in his house. And then sends his dad off to go and negotiate to see if he can get his hand in marriage. It's kind of backwards. It's messed up. In fact, there's nowhere in the text, there's nowhere in the culture where this kind of thing would be considered culturally acceptable. There's one reason why this guy thinks he can get away with this. You can find this in verse 2. When Shechem, Shechem, son of Hamar, the Hivite, the ruler of the area, he is a big fish in a small pond, and he believes that he can take what he wants and make up for it later if that's what he has to do. And that's what he chooses to do. He sends his father off to beg for her hand in marriage. This is wrong. It's backwards. It's messed up. And, and you're told exactly how the family feels about it because the brothers find out about what has happened in the middle of verse 7 of chapter 34. And it says this, They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel, a thing that should not be done. Like there, there's nothing culturally where they would have thought this could be okay. They're outraged. And yet there's Hamar begging Jacob. He's got a plan. We'll just intermarry. This is going to be great for both of us. You can have wives. We'll have like we'll end up growing a big kingdom because you're pretty wealthy and we're going to get your wealth and all of this kind of stuff. And the family does not like this idea. But the brothers decide to do something deceptive. That's exactly what verse 13 said. They deceptively speak with Shechem. And this is what they say in verse 14. We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. This would be a disgrace to us. 
and they make him believe that if he and the rest of the city would all become circumcised, they would consider this arrangement. They would all, let's marry, intermarry, we'll do it. You're, you're circumcised, we're circumcised, everything's great. Shechem goes and sells this to the city. In verse 22, he makes this plea, and the men of the city, they're in. They agree to this. And so they all get circumcised. And then, verse 25, three days later, all, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, they're her blood brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. This is Shechem. This is the place where God met Abram and said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the world through you. This is Shechem, where Jacob finally makes things right with his family. Things are whole again, and he builds an altar signifying that I'm right with God. God's going to bless me, and he's going to be a blessing through me. And the question you can ask right here as you look at this text is this. How's the mission going? Do you think the world feels blessed in this moment? We know what Jacob thinks. It's recorded in verse 30. He says to these two boys, you brought trouble on me making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites. If you look at other translations, it will say smell, it will say stink. It's like a rotting odor. You guys have made me a rotting odor to everybody that we're around. We stink now. And you have this situation where if you go and look, by the way, if you go and look at what these boys did, they didn't just kill all the males in the city the scriptures say they also took the women and the children and they either they kept them as slaves or they sold them into slavery. That's what they did. Does anybody feel blessed in this moment? If there was any sense that they were going to bless the world, God was going to bless the world through them, that's gone. It's been erased, eradicated. And to make matters worse, if you look at the last verse in chapter 34, these guys believe they were justified in what they did. What else are we supposed to do? This person did this to our sister. Of course we should have killed them all. Of course we should have sold them all into slavery. There's not a, there's not a repentant thing in their souls at all. What happened was wrong. What they did was wrong, but they couldn't they couldn't bring themselves to accept that. Now, this is not a small thing, and I want you to catch this. Why did Jacob refer to this situation as a smell that stank? I, th I think I can help explain it. I'm going to take you back to one of the first sacrifices um, that happens in the text. Noah gets off the ark. 
He feels by, blessed by God to be alive. He sees that God is renewing creation, that the flood's going down like this. He's going to repair this. This is going to be good. He builds an altar, and on it, he sacrifices several birds. That happens in verse 20. And in verse 21, it says this. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground. I want you to catch those two words. What was it? A pleasing aroma. Why? Because God's got a big sniffer and he just inhaled it in? Like, that smells so good? That happened to me yesterday, by the way. I was taking my wife out on a date, and we were walking up to the restaurant, and we could smell it in the air. And she goes, oh, this is going to be good. And it was. That's the imagery that God does not have a nose. That's the imagery that he's trying to put forth. I smelled this thing. This is good. What you're doing is good. It pleases me. It causes me to go, man, I want to bless you. I'm excited about what's happening here. And in two cases, what we find is that God was blessing Abram and Jacob, excited about this mission that they were going to go on. And now we find ourselves with a family that has lost its way. They're revenge killing. They're selling people into slavery. They hate their own brother. He's showing signs of favoritism. All you have here is a complete mess. It's off the rails. What's God supposed to do? Like, what's he supposed to do with his family? Does he wash his hands of them? Back away and say, I tried, but these people are nuts. I'm done with them. Does God instead go, Oh, okay, you want to be that way? Then I'm going to bring some punishment on you, and I'm just going to grind you into the dirt, and I'm going to go after you until you come to your senses and get it right. Is that what God's going to do? Or, or does God decide to kick off a plan to change the aroma of this family in the very place they stunk it up? Sounds like God, doesn't it? See, the reason Shechem comes up, the reason all of this history is in the background and he references to it, is this family who had just at the place of Shechem in their history had killed a bunch of people and sent a bunch of others into slave were now about to fake kill their own brother and send him into slavery. They're the same. They're so messed up and so lost. And what was God to do? God comes up with a plan. And he, he tells us all of this by connecting these dots through Shechem. And here's the plan. It's not, it's not an easy plan. It's actually a pretty rough plan. One person in that family would have to become a living sacrifice. They'd have to go off down from a lofty place that they held and they would have to become a slave and a servant somewhere else. They would have to learn to do the will of the Father 
above all else. There'd be a time when they would be elevated by God to the right hand of the Pharaoh. They would stand in front of everybody and warn of impending doom, but if they would listen, they could be saved. This guy would gather a whole bunch of grain, which would make bread that would save countless lives. And who is this? Who's doing this? A guy from the family that stank. That's who. And by the time you get to the end of Joseph's story, it's a different response when you say, how's the mission going? Because it appears by the time Joseph has finally listened to his father, followed those instructions, <coughs> excuse me, that he is now in a place where the world is being blessed and his family is too. And how did that happen? God came close. God came close. Instead of washing his hands, instead of backing away, really isn't, isn't that the question that people still ask today? What happens between me and God when I fail? Does God wash his hands of me? Is he so just disappointed that he just backs away and he doesn't want to have anything to do with my life? Does he, does he look at me and decide, I'm going to pour onto your life all kinds of pain and hurt and sorrow. I'm going to punish you until you finally figure out that you've got to get back on the right path. Does he come at you like that? Or can I offer you the story of Joseph as a way that God would go about dealing with your life instead? then instead of doing all of those things, what he would do is that he would find one who would sacrifice for you so that your story could be changed from a stink to a pleasing aroma, not based on what you did, but based on what he did. <laughs> Does it make you think of anything? The story of Joseph is the foreshadowing of what Jesus would do in your life, in my life. He would leave a lofty place. He would come as a servant. He would do the will of his father. He would be elevated to the right hand of God. He would speak a message of judgment that if you would listen, you could be saved. He would become living bread. Where if you took from him, you could live. And yet, I don't know how many times I've heard people come up with this other idea of who God is in their life. This God who would strike out with vengeance and disdain for you and the failures in your life. And from that God we run, from that God we hide.
from that God, we cause all kinds of problems, and it's the wrong picture. It was the wrong picture. If you want to understand what God will do in your life when you fail, will you just look at Jesus? who became a sacrifice for you out of a deep love for you so that your life could have a different aroma if you would just trust him and follow. Uh, this story um, caused me to think of a song that I've been listening to. I've found uh, a band that I like a lot. They put a lot of scripture to music, um, unique music. I love that kind of stuff. But I've been listening to this song, and I was like, i got to play it for you. I just... I think it describes what we do with God and what God really wants from us instead. So I want you to listen to this. I just want to say I'm hopeless without you. I've searched far and wide to find that it doesn't get any better. I just want to say I'm sorry for running in circles with my sin shame when you told me to run to this morning what I want to do is celebrate that love that just appears to be irresponsible to us. Because God keeps leaning in and leaning in and leaning in into your life. Because if you will lean into Him, there will be a different aroma, a different smell that comes out from your obedience, from your desire to hold on to Him and let Him rewrite your story. That got celebrated with the disciples. They were in an upper room with Jesus. And uh, there was some bread there. And for the first time, anything like this had happened. He picked up this bread and he broke it. And he said, listen, I want you to think of this bread as my body. And I want you to take it and eat it. I want you to know that I love you so much 
I'm going to go be broken for you. And he passed that around the table, and they all took a piece. And then he picked up the cup, This was a Passover, so there would have been several different cups there. He said, I want you to understand that I'm going to shed my blood for you. you, I love you that much, I'm going to sacrifice. And when you take this, I want you to think of the sacrifice that I've given on your behalf. And so we're going to celebrate communion today. We're going to celebrate the body of Christ that's broken for you. We're going to celebrate the blood of Christ that's shed for you. And as you do it, I want you to think about this irresponsible love that pursues you despite your failures. See, this is an early story, and God wanted it recorded early on how would he would deal with people who failed him. He would rescue you. He would rewrite. He would redirect the story. God's doing that with your life right now, even if you can't see it and understand it. Do you think Joseph understood what was going on when he was in jail? It's only at the end where his stuff made sense. So this morning, we're going to have our, our people take their places. And we're just going to invite you as, um, to come forward. You'll come up to somebody who's holding the bread. You'll tear a piece off. And they're going to say, the body of Christ broken for you. And then you're going to dip it in the cup, the blood of Christ shed for you. And if, if you're like, nope, it's too early for me to dip into a common cup, that's all right. Um, Tracy's got a, a thing over here that's got gluten and some self, like they're all individually wrapped. You can come and get a wafer and a little juice cup from her that nobody else shares. You can do that. We want you to participate if you can. If you're a follower of Jesus, we want you to remember this irresponsible love that pursues your heart. Guys, if you would take your places, and then we're going to invite you. Once they're in place, we're going to invite you to come forward and be in communion.